Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Many people in the U.S. are starting to question our economic systems. A new survey from the Pew Research Center found that over two-thirds of Americans want to see major changes in the economy. And as we move toward a post-pandemic world, what can we do to build an economy that works for everyone? This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This week, how we shape our political economy and how that political economy shapes us. Later, we'll hear from the Labor Department's chief economist on how lifting the voices of Black women can benefit all of us. But first, Dr. Margaret Levy. She joins to break down the state of our current economic system and what we can do to change it. She's professor of political science and senior fellow at the Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford University. She's also director of the Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Sciences. They have a new project that's called Creating a New Moral Political Economy. Margaret, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you. The the Center for Advanced Study has this long history of really taking on exceptional projects across a range of areas. And its newest flagship project is creating a new moral political economy. Explain to our listeners what that project is and what you hope to accomplish. So what that program is all about is many of us, probably you included, have noticed for some time that the current political economic framework is not working very well, that it's fraying. And this isn't really surprising. I mean, if you look at the history of, since Adam Smith, of capitalist and democratic political economic frameworks, every 20 to 30 years or so, they go through a transformation. They go through a transformation for several reasons, all of which we're seeing right now. One is there's big technological change that changes the nature of work, changes the nature of social interactions and relationships, um, changes the economy in a variety of ways. The other very important piece of it is new interests develop who want to have some voice and power in the system. Sometimes it's a conflict among elites. The new super rich are battling the old super rich. But sometimes, as we've seen on multiple occasions through the history of the United States, France, Britain, Australia, you name it, um, we see that there's also mobilization coming from, if you will, the bottom up or the middle, really demanding that their concerns, interests, voices, rights be respected, developed, expanded. And I think all of those things are happening right now. And what has often happened, certainly in this century, not as much in the last century, is that that transformation has been run by economists. And that's fine. Economists are an important part of the story, but they're not the only participants in the story. It's not only about finding a formula that makes the economy run a little better. So in our One of the other things about the Center for, I'm a political scientist, as you know, and and one of the other things about the Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Sciences is it involves a a multiple set of not only disciplines, 
but thinkers from a variety of domains. And so my view and the center's view has been that if we're gonna help generate the next political economic framework, we're never sure where exactly the ideas are coming, gonna come from and we have to crowdsource and we have to make it a really multidisciplinary, multi cross-sectoral enterprise. So what we've been doing is really generating a network of thinkers that include people from NGOs and governments and from business, as well as the scholars that are attracted as fellows and participants normally in the center's activities um, in order to really start to think about what it, so we see, we're not necessarily the agents of change, but any agent of change needs ideas. So we're really this, hopefully one of the sources, not the only one, but one of the sources of where ideas might come from. So that's what generating a new moral political economy is all about. And the word moral is in there because frankly, every political economic framework, again, from the time of Adam Smith has had values implicated in it. And sometimes those values aren't made explicit. So we've heard a lot about value-free social science from the economists, for example. And yet when you look at Hayek's book, the road from serfdom or the Friedman's book, Free to Choose. I mean, those are laden with value words and individualism, the focus on individualism, the focus on a certain kind of liberty, not don't mess with me, liberty, um, are values and not necessarily the values all of us hold or all of us feel that as, pri as the primary values. And we all hold those values, of course, but you know they may not be primary for us. And it may be time to rethink what values we want to inform the, this po the next political economic framework. Before we talk about those values, because it is important often when there is a discussion or debate about values, it's really about which values we think should be dominating the conversation and who gets to promote those values. I wanna take a step back because as you said, you are a political scientist, as am I. And one of the critiques of our field and of social science in general is that we are so narrowly focused within our own domain, that we are trained to talk to one another and not necessarily engage across spaces. And there has been a movement toward more interdisciplinary work. But what you're saying to me is somewhat different because what you're saying is in the world of ideas, our ideas need to be connected to these real world, quote unquote, challenges, but also think about how we partner with the people who are on the front lines of implementing those ideas. Why do you think that's particularly important now when we think about the relationship between citizens and their governments? I think it's always been important, but I think we have a moment where it's become not only more important more important, but more possible. So let me let me answer that in a complex way because there are multiple threads in your question and multiple threads to my answer. So first of all, the center itself has been um, committed and was founded by the Ford Foundation in 1954 out of a group of social scientists in the post-World War II era of optimism about what social science could do. And the idea was really to bring a, a large, a group of smart people together for an academic year and hope and hope that they would make advances on significant societal challenges. 
I believe that has to be structured a little more. And so since I've become the director of the center, we have had these formal programs and projects that are really thinking about, let's start with a significant societal challenge. Let's think about it, not as a research program, but as something we need to do to really think hard about what the research program should look like. And to think about it over, if you will, a midterm time period or longer term time period, then how are we gonna solve this problem today? So really thinking about what's 10 or 20 years likely to look like, how do we get to real answers to some of these problems? And that in itself means that you need a different way of thinking about things. And so the center has been trying to be a model, not only in thinking about particular questions, but also a new style of that, you know, perhaps might infiltrate since we attract major scholars from all kinds of places, might infiltrate the university at some point. The other piece of that is the relationship to what's going on in terms of uh, mobilization generally. And here it's a different kind of answer, I think, because you, know, you, you're, you can see, your audience cannot, what a beautiful remote place we are. We are not in the city connected to what's happening on the ground or in a rural farm area that's struggling to survive. I mean, we are a very privileged place up here, um, but it needs to connect to the world. I mean, there needs to be a way to be, to think separately, but then to connect. And here we've been very lucky in two ways. One, we are part of what has been funded, the Moral Political Economy Program is part of what's been funded by the Hewlett Foundation, as well as others, but they've really taken the lead. And they have in this network of things that they have funded, some are academics, but many are organizations like the Roosevelt Institute or um, the Center for Community Change that are really much more about how do you mobilize people and how do you institute, how do you create policy? So that's part of the answer. And then the so we're connecting that way. We are the part that's helping to, not alone, as I said, there are other groups and clearly we learn from those partners as well as help those partners learn. But the third piece of it uh, really has to do with the kind of theory of change that underlies uh, what we're doing. I like to call it the Francis Perkins model of change. It, it will be familiar to you because it's not dissimilar from what John Kingdon and others have argued about how change comes about. So it's not like it's mine, but I like to identify it with Francis Perkins because she's one of my great role models. Um, and you probably know who she is, but just for your audience, um, Francis Perkins was the first woman to become a member of a presidential cabinet. She was the secretary of labor. She is one of the most, one of the people most responsible for giving us social security, for giving um, us union rights and collective bargaining, for creating a labor relations system, um, for thinking about social insurance. One of the things that she did when she was secretary of labor and that she did earlier, just she was, she was actually a witness in 1911 to the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. She happened to be on the sidewalks of New York when young immigrant women were throwing themselves out of that burning sweatshop building because the uh, supervisors had locked the doors so that they couldn't go to the bathroom and it blocked off the fire escape so that they couldn't take a break or a smoke and they couldn't get out of the building. But she had been working through Hull House and through uh, other jobs that she'd had 
with sweatshop workers, with budding unions, with poor people in communities to try to find out what they needed, not just what social workers told them they needed. And so she and others in this, people in the state legislature of New York had actually started to prepare legislation. And so they took advantage of that crisis. She was ready. But the, 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 the programs that she developed then and the programs that she developed when she was uh, secretary of labor were very informed by the people that, who needed those programs. She, they had mobilized or they were in proto-mobilization. So she was bringing in John Maynard Keynes from one end and the voices of the population from the other end. But that was not enough. Just getting good legislation there in front of the Congress was not enough or in front of the legislature. You also needed reasonably good leadership. So, you know, I think about the COVID crisis. That should have been a period when the United States came together, and it wasn't because we had some significantly problematic leaders in very crucial places, most importantly, the presidency, who were not interested in bringing us together or solving the problem in my perspective, from my perspective. Roosevelt was a different kettle of fish, so he was interested in that, might not have done everything she wanted, but he was, he was a good leader and able to help facilitate that. So it's a combination of ideas and mobilization and good prop, good you know, solutions to the practical problems, good legislation, but also good leadership who can help see that through. So when those things come together, you have an opportunity that you don't usually have. So it's important to try to ensure that each of those pieces is in place in my view and in the view, as you know, of many scholars who've thought about what, what leads to change. But as I said, I like to call it the Francis Perkins model of change. And what I think is core to that model of change and, and what Francis Perkins modeled in her own navigation of those spaces is a willingness and a humility to listen to voices and experiences that may differ from your own, to, as you said, to listen to those experiences, to be informed by them, but to also be willing to take a step back and say, maybe we need to reset. And that as a value, sometimes feel like it is disappearing. And you talk about in your TEDx talk, you talk about the importance of societal values in creating new institutions. What would you say are one or two of those values that are critical for building this new moral political economy that you're advocating for? Yes. So let's start with one that has been really informing the political economic framework that we currently live under, which many call neoliberalism or neoconservatism, or there are various names for it, supply side economics. It really focuses on the individual and individual rights and individual liberty and individual freedom from um, interference. And that really is a value that's being stated. It's being stated as if it's a scientific fact that people are only motivated by self-interest and so then narrow self-interest, narrow economic self-interest for themselves and for their family. So not, not totally individualistic, but it's still a value. I'm much more of the school uh, inspired by Elizabeth Anderson, Danielle Allen, Deborah Satz, who think about relational equality, who think about, um, and, and much more inspired also by the work of Kahneman and Tversky and what's followed from that, 
that really recognizes that individual rationality is not what we thought it was. It can't be the basis of a political economic framework. So there's a scientific piece of this, but there's also an, another scientific piece of it, which also comes from psychologists as well as from the political, the philosophers and political theorists I just mentioned, which is that we're social beings. Yes, we do care about our interests, but we're social beings. We're eager to connect. We need to coordinate that we're looking for communities of various kinds and that that's got to be a crucial piece of the story and that we have to build a framework that is based on that understanding of humans, not to deny that we have clearly we have material economic interests. People have to eat. They have to be clothed. They have to have housing. Um, they have to have work that gives them dignity, but that and gives them money. <laughs> but, you know, that said, we're looking for relate. We're relational. And one of the things that we need to do and a crucial value that comes from what I just said is that we want to be free from domination. It's not interference. We need to be relatively equal. We need to not have powers that are inappropriate. Obviously, there's sometimes it's necessary to have some hierarchical legitimated authority, you know, that there are rules and laws that we have to obey, but that's different than me dominating you from some kind of social power in power imbalance, right? So those are key values, you know, not focusing on the individual, but focusing on social connectedness and relationships and thinking hard about how power is structured into our society so that we actually get to some form of relational equality. So those are, and that leads to a, a, a thing that I have argued for with my uh, co-author, John Alquist, for some years, based on studies that we have done of some unions that sort of are uh, proof that this is possible, proof of possibility, is an expanded and inclusive community of fate, F-A-T-E, fate, not faith, um, where people understand that their destinies are entwined with each other. So this is really about being social beings and that they will engage in costly actions on behalf of distant others who may never be able to reciprocate. And the unions are fabulous proof of that pudding because unions are developed to win wages, hours, working conditions, the economic interests of workers. And yet there are unions, the longshore workers of the West Coast and US and of Australia, these are dock workers, people who when you're hearing a lot about them these days, because they're the people in Long Beach and in Los Angeles who are loading the ships and trying to break the supply chain problem. But these are people who, you know, were protecting their economic self-interest. If that wasn't happening, they couldn't do the rest, but also closing the ports and willing to go to prison to get beaten up, maybe even to be killed in order to help people who could not help them at all but who they feared that if that happens to them, if that kind of thing is going on, South African apartheid, um, the, China, the Japanese invasion of Manchuria, not giving abortion rights to women, it could happen to anybody. So that you have to take a stand on behalf of humanity where you can. After the break, we continue our conversation with Stanford political scientist, Margaret Levy. She'll talk about how we can better integrate the environment into our economy. And later, the chief economist for the U.S. Department of Labor on the lessons we can take away from the COVID-19 pandemic. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. 
Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're hearing from experts about how we can make positive changes to our political economy. Later in the show, labor economist Janelle Jones talks about how to better center people in our economy. But now we return to our conversation with political scientist Margaret Levy. She leads the Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University. The center's ambitious new project seeks to redefine the way our economy works, and it's called Creating a New Moral Political Economy. Ask Margaret how she responds to critics who say their mission is too radical. I don't see it as a radical transformation. I certainly, I mean, given where we are right now, it feels it would be a big change. That's for sure. But we've seen big changes in the history of the world before. Whoever thought democracy would come in? People used to think slavery was natural. I mean, there have, and that women were, you know, women were the property of their husbands. So we have seen big normative shifts and big institutional shifts, even more importantly. So, you know, the, I, there are days I wake up totally pessimistic, I have to admit, or I can't go to sleep because I'm so worried about the state of the world because it's very, very disturbing. All the things that you just described are certainly going on and more. I mean, we're seeing violence in many, many places that should not be happening. On the other hand, that may be a sign that things are about to change. I mean, sometimes you have to really go down into the depths in order to crawl up to the top again and get to a better place. So, you know, I do think we're in a terrible moment, but it's also a moment where a lot of people are beginning to think, wait a minute, we need something different than this. This is not acceptable. Where Whatever side they're on, on that, on that debate, we're looking for new forms of institutional arrangements that allow people to actually express what they want to do. So, you know, it's very hard to predict, as you know, what will happen. But you can, we can know from looking at history that change, one, does happen. Change is as natural as, yeah, people get in their mindset that the status quo is what is natural. But if you look at the long durée of history, there's been an immense amount of change, right? And that change is usually preceded by a period of just tremendous discontent, mess, ugliness. And so, you know, part of me who wants to be optimistic says, we're learning how bad it can be in order to get to a place where we can begin to talk to each other again about how to make it better. And that's why it's really important for groups to be mobilizing all kinds of groups, right, left, center, crazies, smarts, you know, to get that conversation out there. And I think the COVID crisis, I mean, I'm, it really upsets me that we weren't able to create. It seemed to me when it started, horrible as it is, that this was also a moment where we might have had, you know, what Michael Dawson talked about or Martin Luther King talked about or we talked about with, I hardly want to put myself in the same category as those two, but still, you know, with our expanded and inclusive community of fate. But it didn't happen. And I do think that the absence of good leadership is part of that story. And also that we didn't really have, we don't have, we don't have a good narrative yet. And I think that that's part of what we've got to do. We've got to tell the story of how this is possible and what it could look like. And that people have some hope that there isn't place on the other side of this terrible valley of despair. 
Um, I've been reading a lot of uh, speculative fiction recently for a project I'm involved in, in part, and the project is really about imagining adaptive societies um, and how to think about Kim Stanley Robinson, the famous uh, science fiction writer who wrote The Ministry of the Future, which is now a best-selling book, and thanks to the Moral Political Economy Program, which was informed part of what he was writing, is a, a very great example of someone who thinks about how we might get from here to there and can think about it in a way that we as social scientists, you earlier talked about our training, can't do that. We're not trained to do that. We're trained to think about how to, frankly, we're trained to think about how to write a footnote on a footnote, <laughs> you know, how to do an incremental project. So, you know, learning from the speculative and their whole group of them who do this, um, learning from them about how to take the world that we live in and think about some imaginary, some imaginary. I just, I just read an incredibly depressing book uh, by Octavia Butler Fabulous book, but Parable of the Sower. But, you know, they're the world. I mean, I'm afraid that world looks an awful lot like what our world is beginning to get to. And it's so depressing. But she begins to look for the earth seed, the way out of that uh, dilemma. And people begin to, in that terrible world, begin to find each other and to begin to try to develop an alternative. So that's my hope, that this may sound like radical change, it may sound unrealistic, but it's based on good science and it's based on the way people really are and what people really want. I mean, most people, you read something like Arlie Hochschild, Strangers in Their Own Land, those people are searching for a community and they're angry because they feel like others have gotten ahead of them on the ladder of success who should, I mean, I think they're wrong about that. So, but they are people who care about each other and care about their community. And we have to recognize that and build on that and recognize that that's a common need. Look how people respond during floods and disasters. Let's build on that. You know, they cross all kinds of social boundaries. You know, when I think about one of the things that gets me going in the morning is the idea that people are saying enough and that they're organizing to fight back against that. And that, you know, the thing I talk about in, in my own work with Ray Block is that people were literally willing to risk their lives at the height of a pandemic in 2020 in order to go vote. And so it means that change is possible and that change is often driven by those who feel that they've been shut out. One of the changes that I do want to talk about as we, you know, sort of continue and wrap our conversation is something that's near and dear to us here on this show is the idea of the environment and climate change and how our uh, economic commitments could be a path to doing more and doing better things in order to secure the future when it comes to that. How important is it to address the climate crisis within this broader framework that you're promoting? Absolutely essential. So um, the little book on a moral political economy talks about the flourishing of, of the people and the planet, the people who inhabit the planet and the planet itself. So what we, we have a whole uh, group and Kim Stanley Robinson has been part of that discussion at various times and many others um, about uh, a bio, an earth-friendly political economy and about biophilic 
political economy and institutions. So I don't see how you could have a new moral political economy that doesn't take the planet into account um, and really think about how we as people and we as nature, we are nature, but we also have to be better integrated with the rest of nature, with the species that we're stop, we have to stop destroying species and we have to really think about um, how we're going to inhibit climate change and make this place work for us and for the earth. Um, a new project that program that we're developing at CASBIS uh, is called Human Nature Machines. And it's really about that interaction. How are we going to create better relationships? So it's focused. Each of our programs sort of gives life to a new program. So Future of Work and Workers gave life to a new moral political economy because we had to think more broadly than just the workers. As we've been working on a moral political economy, one of the things that really requires a very different kind of attention is both the ways in which technology has developed, so the machines, um, and how that can be used and is hurting the earth and the people and how we're gonna create a better set of relationships, a better equilibrium among those various components that are absolutely critical to both our flourishing and our progress and survival as a world. So the last question that I will ask of you is, what does sustainability look like for you in terms of <laughs> the, you know, the projects that you're working on, how it's all connected and the idea of, We've seen some short-term changes, some immediate changes, but you're talking about let's look 10, 15, 20 years down the road. What is it that you'd like us to see? Well, I'd like us to see a world in which one, people have dignity at work and that that work can include, and that dignity may come with work that isn't always pretty, but you know, where, for example, cleaning up the earth may require hard and dirty work, but could give you real sense of self-respect for being engaged in that. So I think we need to think about a world in which human nature and machines are really working together within an institutional environment, which hopefully the new moral political economy can help create. Um, so that we have different rules of the game, different ways of interacting, different social relations that are in, empowered by those institutional arrangements rather than deadened by those institutional relationships and um, institutional arrangements that then allows us to have a world in which we can work together with our machines, with our uh, animals and with our land to actually make the world much more beautiful, but also sustain it for them, for us, for us all. Dr. Margaret Levy is director of the Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Sciences. She's also senior fellow at the Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford University. Margaret, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Wonderful to talk with you. Coming up, economist Janelle Jones. She shares how she's using her role at the Labor Department to lift the voices of Black women. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Disrupted. 
I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Many people were optimistic that 2021 would bring some relief for the many who have been struggling over this last year and a half. Instead, there are over 5 million Americans who were working before the pandemic, but still unemployed today. We wanted to revisit a conversation we had last May with Janelle Jones. She's chief economist for the U.S. Department of Labor, and she believes we can use the pandemic as a launch point to make real change to our economy. Her previous work centered on the role of black women in the workforce, and she now plays a key role in the future of labor policy in the U.S. Janelle, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. I want to start with the historic nature of the role that you're playing at the Department of Labor. You are the first Black woman to be chief economist, and much of your work has centered issues of racial equity, and in particular, Black women in the workforce. How does being in this position at this moment in our country's history shape the work that you are doing? That's a great question. And, you know, the the historic nature of the appointment is is not lost on me or my family, for that matter, who are still keeping the, the family chat very much alive with excitement. Um, you know, something that really excited me about President-elect Biden and now President Biden is his commitment to equity. Um, you know, we heard a lot about it on the campaign trail. Uh, and I'm, I'm really, you know, just excited and thrilled to see that he's really brought that into his role as president. His very first executive order was on advancing racial equity and serving marginalized populations and just a broad mandate for all of the federal agencies to think about the work we're doing around equity and how we can think about, you know, reaching populations that are usually left behind. And I think, you know, at this moment, I think we're we're all probably tired of hearing the word unprecedented, uh, but it's still very much true. You know, we're, we're facing a, a once in a generation health crisis. We're facing an economic recession. And to bring the the framework and the narrative around inclusion and equity to how we come back from this is just, you know, it really is an opportunity that, you know, I'm, I'm really proud and excited to see that we are not wasting. There will be people who will listen to that, who will hear you mention things like centering equity and the unprecedented health crisis and the economic devastation that many people have experienced over this last year because of the measures that we needed to keep people healthy and safe. And they will ask, why then, with so many people who are struggling, why then should we talk about race and equity? How do you respond to that? That's a that's a good question. And, you know, anyone who asked me that would not be alone in asking that question. And I think, you know, I have a, uh, two answers. One is what happens when we don't? We have an economy that is fundamentally flawed. We have an economy that is less resilient to dealing with recessions. We have an economy where not just, uh, you know, people of color left behind, but, you know, the it, it's not just white folks or it's not just people of color who, you know, need unemployment insurance, who need food assistance, who need housing assistance. And what we see is when we don't think about the groups who are usually left behind, when we don't focus on race and ethnicity, it is hard to bring those groups in later. It's hard to say, like, let's do a policy over here and let's let's add in the black folks later. We see that that is impossible to do. And it just makes our economy less resilient. So I think now is really the time to thinking about building a robust, inclusive economic recovery that, that's better for all of us. It really it really is a way to think about inclusion. Um that makes everyone better off and not just, you know, the groups that we tend to be highlighting. 
Let's talk about how that focus on inclusion can create better opportunities and better outcomes for the entire country. You have pioneered the phrase, Black women best. What does that phrase mean to you and how does it shape the work that you do? Yeah, um, you know, I, I came across this phrase maybe a year ago or so, and someone asked, you know, if you had just three words to sum up, you know, what you think about the economy, what's your economic ideology? Uh, and th- these were the three words, was Black women best. Um, and it really is, you know, a framework that reorients our economic worldview. It says that if we can center, you know, who we, um, if we can shift who we center in economic analysis and policy, we can create an economy that works better for everyone. A Black woman best ideology, you know, leads to enacting deliberate strategies of inclusion. It leads to an economy where our most marginalized can thrive. And I think this is the type of thinking, you know, certainly in my role at DOL that I'm still you know, really excited to be doing. Um, and, you know, I think we we see the need to center these folks in policy solutions in the way that we're evaluating whether or not a program is good. And, you know, something I'm, I'm thinking about now is also, you know, how we evaluate when we've succeeded, when we've actually recovered. Um, so I think it really is a, a helpful tool and narrative way to, to think about centering folks who are usually left behind. How might this pandemic or the lessons of the pandemic affect what we do to better center the equity concerns that you mentioned, but also look forward to think about how should we be doing things differently to lift up those underrepresented communities? Such a great question. You know, I think something that I really hope comes from this is that we don't return to an economy of early 2020, um, that we also don't return to an economy of, of four years ago, right? Like we've seen a, a generation of attacks on collective bargaining, on workers' benefits, on wages. Um, and so really hoping that, you know, I I hate to say it, I know it is the slogan, but it's true. Like we really are trying to build back better when we think about this. And so, you know, I, I think that President Biden is taking this moment to reimagine and to rebuild an American economy that works for workers. I, I talked to, to folks I know who are raising kids during this time and they're, you know, they just, they just want to scream into the phone for 30 minutes <laughs> and I'm happy to listen to that. But I think, you know, we have seen that we need a care economy to make sure that the rest of the economy is going. An investment in infrastructure and care is also a, a real investment in black and brown women. We know that about half of domestic workers are black and brown women. And so when we say we want these jobs to be good paying, we want them to have benefits, we want them to have security and dignity and stability, we are supporting Black and brown women, not just as workers, but also their families and their communities. The work that you've been doing around equity and the need to address it from a systemic structural space really affirms that it's not that women are voluntarily leaving the workforce, it is that often they are pushed out because of these competing demands on their time. What sort of strategies would you recommend that as we are thinking about building back better and and stronger and more inclusive, what are the things that we should be paying attention to? Yeah, this is such such an important point. Um, You know, since the beginning of the pandemic, four million women have left the workforce and there's still two million that haven't returned. About a half a million Black women have left the workforce. And this, um, you know, before this, you know, Black women are are very much attached to the labor market. They have higher labor force participation rates than their counterparts. And so it really is, um, you know, being forced out because of these responsibilities that you mentioned, like care and school closings and things like that. And I think these investments in the care economy are are a great start. Um, You know, we're also thinking about other sorts of, of benefits that folks need to stay attached. 
Um, and, you know, one that the president has come out um, in favor of and, you know, my, my boss, uh, Secretary Walsh, who I'm really excited to be working with, is also in favor of um, is the PRO Act. And we see that when folks are uh, in a union, they have better benefits, they have more access to the, the supports and structures that they need to stay attached during hard times. Um, you know, we've, we've definitely seen that over the over the past year that uh, folks who are in a union had better economic outcomes than their counterparts who weren't. So I think, yeah, there's some there's some exciting um policies we have in place that we can move forward on. Uh, but we really, you know, the the point I think I've I've been making for a couple of months now is we really just have to keep going. We really do have to keep our foot on the gas. I am as excited as anyone um, to see that we are we're going back out. We're we're going, we're doing things, um, you know, the, the CDC announcements and whatnot. Um, but we're not done. You know, we're we're not there yet. We still have so many workers and families and communities that are not yet experiencing economic recovery. And so we just have to keep going. So let's talk about the the keep going aspect. As the country is starting to reopen, as people are starting to engage more, you mentioned the PRO Act, which is the Protecting the Right to Organize Act. It's already passed in the House. It's awaiting a vote in the Senate. And one of the things that that act would do was increase protections in the workplace for workers to organize. And it also provides a mechanism to levy fines against companies who break these laws. How important is it as we think about inclusive recovery, as we think about protecting and inform- and affirming workers, particularly workers of color, how important is that act to creating a federal foundation for the work that can happen at every level? I mean, so important. Is there is there any other answer rather than so important? You know, I've talked um, and, and other places about, you know, the experience I've had with seeing, you know, my mom go from working in fast food to, to getting a, a union job and just the the transformation it made, not just in that she was making better wages, but in that she had, you know, worker protection, that she had benefits, we had better health insurance. We we knew when she would be going to work and when she wouldn't be. Um, so, you know, I, I really do like I have seen in my own life the way that um, organizing and union membership can just change fundamentally how a person experiences the economy and society and their family life. And so, you know, I think the president has been, um, you know, out in front of this, as has the secretary, about how the middle class, you know, a strong middle class is it's so, so important to a strong economy. Um, We cannot, you know, we can't have a, a class of workers who don't have protections, who don't have a voice on the job. And so we know that over the past generation, I want to say, um, there's really been an erosion of America's middle class in terms of workers' rights. Um, we've seen, you know, union membership decline. We've seen um, right to work being organized at the state level. And so protecting workers' rights to organize in a union is just, it's critical and it's crucial to rebuilding from this moment and long-term structurally. Um, and, you know, we we are, um, like the president, in favor of the PRO Act. We think it's really important for this for workers, you know, as we think about the the new economy, the, the space they're in, you know, I often, um, you know, talk to my parents about like the way the world is just so much different than the than the world that they were in when they were my age. Um, but I don't think that, you know, new technology is a reason to abandon the rights of workers. I think we can do both at the same time. And so that's, you know, what we're thinking about here at the Department of Labor. Given the broader changes that we're seeing in the economy, in the you know increase in AI and technology, the uh, prominence of the gig economy, and all the things that we learned about the vulnerability and risk that many workers were facing, how do we address that as 
a possibility for innovation as opposed to a source of fear? That is a great, a great question. You know, to your point about staying in the same job, I think, you know, I think my mom is like definitely proud of the work that I'm doing, but she's also just like, God, your resume is too long. You've just had too many jobs. I'm like, this is, this is what we're doing. It's fine. Um, But to your serious, substantial question about the gig economy and technology, you know, we have seen the economy go through technological disruption without leaving workers behind. Um, You know, my, my favorite example is thinking about the assembly line. I mean, folks thought that this would, I mean, I mean, it did fundamentally change how the economy works, but you know what we did? We unionized the sector and we made manufacturing jobs, good, safe, well-paying jobs. And I think that's really the lens to think about all of this work is new technology is not anti-worker power. There's absolutely no reason that manufacturing is a, is a job that has good benefits, that gets people into the middle class, that protects them and their families, gives them health insurance, but domestic work is not, right? Those are, those are a set of choices that we've just decided to make. And I think we can, we can make different ones. And technology is not a reason to do that. I love having things delivered. I'm absolutely not against the ease of delivery services, but I also know that there's a way for the person delivering that to have protections to be making a safe, um, livable wage. Everything that you have said makes perfect, rational sense, right? Strengthen the middle class, give people quality options so that they can make the best choices for themselves and for their families and the communities that they care about. But we also know that our country has become so politicized that these things that are about creating more economic opportunities often become constrained by partisan and ideological debates. And the work that you do as a chief economist, how do we break through that? So that it's not about party and ideology, but also about, but more about policy that can actually move Americans forward. That is a great fundamental question of our time. And I'm just so lucky that that is not actually my job. Like I am just, I'm so excited that I just get to like dig into the numbers and talk about the data and think about the economic consequences. The thing that that I know as like an economist studying these things are these things are good for everyone. The policies that we've laid out here are good, not just for people who look like me, they're good for all of us. They're good for the economy overall. And so, you know, I think that that's a that's a winning argument. And I think that we're seeing that. Right. I think people were really excited to see the things that we've done so far to provide relief and recovery to millions of workers still suffering. Um, And so I think, you know, we we see what happens when we don't do this. We've seen in an economy that has structurally followed by systemic racism, by rising inequality, by lack of worker power and the way that that doesn't work for most people. And most people don't really want that. Um, and so we're, you know, I think we're we're keeping our, our eye on the prize and we are just pushing forward on things that we know are not just better for people, but also better for the economy. And I think that's just the way to go. Yeah, I think it's it speaks to why it's so important and influential to have you in that role, because your focus can be on, you know, what is the, the data telling us? What do the numbers say and allow others to decide what implementation looks like looking forward? What is it that you would say we should be focusing on or really honing in on that may not be the quick soundbite nightly news perspective that most people would really focus on? Yeah, I think there are three things. So one, I mean, as we've talked about earlier, is thinking about the economic security of black women. Um, It will be fundamentally impossible 
to have an economy that is thriving for black women, but not for everyone else. So that is just a sign that we are we are doing things right for everyone. I think the second thing um, is thinking about the long term unemployed. I've really been thinking about this a lot lately. And these are folks who have been unemployed for at least six months. And I mean, just that is that is devastating, right? That is that is staggering. That is terrible. And these are the folks who are usually the last to benefit from a tight labor market, um, from an economic recovery. So just bringing those folks back will make sure that we really are reaching folks who are hard to reach and bringing them back into to employment. And then the third is seeing signs of improvement of worker power. Um, there was a, a great article from Josh Bivens and Larry Michelle at Economic Policy Institute showing you know, what happens when we make a set of policy choices that don't center workers and worker voice and worker power. And spoiler alert, we're worse off. Who knew? I mean, I think they knew. They've been studying for a long time. Um, but I think seeing these uh, these changes to build back worker power, I think this is this is the way that sets us up for a, not just a strong middle class, but a strong economy. So those would be my three. Janelle Jones is chief economist at the Department of Labor. Janelle, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. This week's episode was produced by James Scoble Wolf, Shekinah Collier, and Katie Talarski. Our interns are B. Levine and Dylan Reyes. I'm Kalila Brown Dean. Thanks for listening. 